Hi, I'm Tyler Saltzi, pastor of Grace Bible Fellowship in Peru, Illinois. Our mission at Grace Bible Fellowship is to magnify the glory of the triune God in Christ Jesus by proclaiming God's word to advance the gospel in our lives and the world. We base who we are and what we do on the good news of Jesus. If you would like to find more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, you can visit our website at www.gbfperu.org. I'm so thankful you've come here to listen to God's Word proclaimed as we seek to understand it and be transformed by it. I hope you find this time meaningful, challenging, convicting, joyful, and even life-changing as we worship through the preaching of God's Word. I invite you to take your copies of the scripture this morning and open to the book of Galatians, chapter 4, the first seven verses. I got it right that time, didn't I? I'm reminded, and I think it's good for us to remember, that Jesus Christ is the senior pastor of this church, not me. He is the one that we follow. I'm thankful for that. (laughs) Very thankful for that. Because his leading never fails, does it? It's always true, it's always sure. It's always dependable. It's always exactly what we need at exactly the right time. And we can follow him wherever he leads. Would you stand with me one more time as we read from God's word this morning? Galatians chapter four, verses one through seven. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, please give me physical strength and spiritual energy to speak your word with faithfulness, clarity, authority, passion, wisdom, humility, and liberty. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated.
there are words that we as Christians need to hear constantly. Words that come from God himself. And like all of God's words, they have withstood the test of time. These are specific words that have comforted Christians throughout the ages. They are words that we need to hear on repeat. And they are words that come directly from the lips of our Savior, Jesus Christ. The good shepherd of our souls. He said what our hearts needed to hear and he said what our hearts longed to hear. And you can read them in John 14, the first verse and also the 27th verse when Jesus says this, let not your hearts be troubled. He hits us square between the eyes with our problem. We are prone to letting our hearts be troubled. If that's not true, then there's no need for Jesus to have said these words. It's not a hypothetical problem. It's a very real problem that you know and that you struggle with even as a follower of Jesus Christ. This might seem like a monumental request that Jesus is making, like we're supposed to ascend to the top of Mount Everest. Do you know the problems in our world, Jesus? Do you know the problems in our country? Do you know the problems in the church? Do you know the problems in my life? What do you mean, don't let my heart be troubled? Everywhere I turn is another reason why my heart should be troubled. In fact, maybe we would think it's my right. It's my right that my heart should be troubled. There's a certain amount of human responsibility, Christian responsibility, in these verses. It's a command. Jesus doesn't say your hearts won't be tempted to be troubled, that all your cares of this world and all the worries that you carry around with you day and night, that fight for space in your mind and in your hearts, and all your desires will automatically vanish out of thin air, but he says to his disciples very pointedly, very directly, let not your hearts be troubled. To think that your heart can remain untroubled in these days. So, are you letting your heart be troubled? Have you given your heart over to the troubles in this world? Have you given your heart over to the troubles that are in your life? Is your heart restless? Is your heart despairing or discouraged? Is your heart downtrodden? Is your heart in turmoil? What goes with this troubled heart? Fear, isn't it? In fact, Jesus said that in John 14, 27, just after he said, let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Why is your heart troubled? Why is your heart afraid? It is a struggle with belief. You are troubled and you are afraid because of unbelief. That's why Jesus goes on to say, believe in God and believe also in me. The problem is that we do not believe what God has said or what God has promised. We don't believe sometimes or we struggle to believe that God is really good. 
We are troubled sometimes because we do not believe that God is really in control. We're troubled because we've lost sight that Jesus is preparing a place for us where we will be with him forever. We lose sight that he is the great I am. That he is the one who says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. What a precious and comforting truth is given to us by Jesus in this passage. Why is it so precious? Why does it warm our hearts so? Why does it untrouble our burdened hearts? Because it gives us this truth, that we can have God as our Father. One commentator says this, The conception of God as our Father is the most charming and transporting thought which ever enters into the bosom of man. And the correlative conception of himself as the Son of God is the most soothing and satisfying thought which a sinner ever finds himself indulging concerning himself. Do we ever gloss over that? That God can be our Father. And that that truth is the most, as this commentator says, charming, transporting thought which could ever enter into our minds. Which could ever enter into our hearts. Then we could understand what Philip in John 14 blurts out right after Jesus says that. Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. To know God as Father, is that enough for you? Is this your thought? Knowing God as Father is a truth that satisfies my soul. It's a truth that would satisfy Philip. It's the truth that would satisfy any man if they truly experienced and knew God as their Father. And may the Lord forgive us when knowing the Father is not enough for us. May he forgive us when all that this Father has has been put on display before us, that we are still blind, even like those initial disciples, so that Jesus has to say then to Philip, have I been with you so long, Philip? You still do not know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. We know what Philip knew. The relationship between God and man is absolutely fundamental to our lives. It's crucial. We have to have it. We want it. But it is ours only through the Son of God, Jesus Christ. We are only adopted into the family of God because Christ has redeemed us. And so Paul here in Galatians chapter 4 now is instructing the Galatians on this doctrine of adoption. And he says this doctrine of adoption is indispensable to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he's taken time in these first seven verses of chapter 4 to show us the intricate workings of what God has done to make us his sons. And Paul wants the Galatians to know for sure that they are God's sons. And what does he tell us? He tells us from beginning to end, it's God 
who's doing it. It all rests upon Him. To think that we don't make God our Father, it's His work towards us so that we can call Him Father. And so we've been asking and answering this question, how do you know you are sons of God? How do you know you are sons of God? Last week we began looking at that first point there. You can follow along in your bulletin if that is helpful. But last week we saw that first point. Remember, you were a slave under the tyranny of sin. Or as Paul puts it, you were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Those elementary principles cover anything in which sinners place their trust in apart from the living God revealed in Christ. And any such object that is turned into a God to which sinners become slaves. This is nothing less than idolatry, is it? We can take good things and turn them into idols, become slaves to them. This slavery is tied to being under the law. So it's slavery that is tied to being under sin. And we remember that the law was never meant to make us righteous. Rather, the purpose of the law was to show us our sin. It's meant to show us how utterly helpless and hopeless we were. It was meant to drive us to Jesus Christ. God meant the law for good. And this is where mankind always goes wrong because we tend to think of the law, we tend to think of those rules as a stepping stone out of our depravity, as a stepping stone, a path to our freedom, as a way to life. But what happens when we live that way? What happens when we think that it's the law that's going to give us life? What happens when we think it's the law that's going to help us pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and make ourselves better? Instead of liberating us, instead of freeing us, we remain enslaved, and this is where the God of this world would love for us to live. He would love for us to live in the cul-de-sac of despair, because that's what happens if we think that the law is going to bring us life only brings more despair that's the tyrannical reign of sin that is the life of the one who is enslaved to the elementary principles of the world and why does Paul meditate on that why does Paul draw our attention to that because it's against this black backdrop of our enslavement that the glorious gospel shines all the brighter with all of its brilliance And the full force of God's saving action is pressed upon us so much more that we see how great the adoption is that we have received from God. So we remember that we were slaves under the tyranny of sin, but then we see what God has done in that second point. God sent His Son to redeem you so that you would receive adoption. God's predetermined, Sovereign plan of redemption that was established before the foundations of the world were being fulfilled in the time that he appointed. And so he sent his son. Reminds us that when Jesus came, he came with the full authority of God. He came as the God-man. But that he was also born of a woman. He was also fully man. And that being God and being man, he also was born, what? Under the law. 
He came to identify with us as those who are sinners. That's shocking that God would identify with us, that God would even want to identify with us, but that is exactly what Jesus has done. He has identified with us and identified with us to the point where he would die for us. He would take our sin upon himself and die on the cross so that we might be redeemed, so that the ransom price would be paid. That's what redemption means. It's to be released by a payment. And Jesus paid the payment in full. There's nothing left to be paid. How many people are enslaved by that thought? That there's still something that they need to pay. Being redeemed means that we have been released from our enslavement, that we are free, that we found new freedom in Christ. And that comes, that relief comes from being forgiven of all of our sin. And so God sent his son to redeem in order to accomplish the purpose of adopting. Notice that word there. Notice this is us receiving adoption. It's not us striving for adoption. He has adopted us to be his home, his own, brought us into his family, lavished his love upon us. The doctrine of God's adopting us as his sons through the work done by Jesus Christ on the cross and through the resurrection should invigorate us, should compel us, compel us to worship, compel us to pray, compel us to live our lives for the sake of Christ's name and for the glory of God. So that was all last week. Now we come to point number three from this week. God sent his spirit to dwell in you. God sent his spirit to dwell in you. I hope as we go through this, you see, this is not hocus pocus we're doing here. I mean, these points come straight from the text, right? Like, if you, if you read the text, if you read, you were following along while I read Galatians 4, 1 through 7, like this point 3, it's not like, it doesn't blow your mind. It's exactly what God said. So that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to say, okay, what does the text say so the text can get into our hearts? Because that's what's going to change us. I'm not trying to be fancy here. I just want to be clear. God sent his spirit to dwell in you. So let's look at verse six. Begins with this foundation or the grounds of Paul's argument. He says, because you are sons, or we could say it this way, since you are sons. We can think of this in the terms of Paul's illustration in verses one and two. Since you have come of age, since you are no longer a slave, you are ready to receive the inheritance And so what does God do? Remember, this is God's action. This is God's initiative. What have we done up to this point? We've only been receiving. God has done it all. And so we might be tempted to think, well, I've come of age. What happens when when a child comes of age? I want to do it on my own. I don't need you, Mom. I don't need you, Dad. I can do this on my own. I got this. But that's not the way it is in God's economy. 
We don't say, I'm old enough to do what needs to be done myself. No, it's God working, not us. So since you are sons, what? Therefore, God. And what does God do? God sends and God seals you with his Holy Spirit. We read those from Ephesians 1 today, didn't we? In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were what? Were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we require a, a possession of it to the praise of his glory. How is, this, how is the inheritance of God guaranteed for you? Not by what you do, but by what God does. And it's what he does through the work of the Holy Spirit. It's the Spirit who is described as the first installment of believers' inheritance in the kingdom of God. How does God say to you that your inheritance is sure and secure? How does he say, you want to know that you have this inheritance? I'm giving you my Spirit. My Spirit is going to live in you. My Spirit is going to dwell in you. And so God is ascending God, isn't he? He sent his son, and now he has sent the spirit. He sent the son to do a work outside of us, a work where because of what Jesus does, he is able to give us his righteousness, credit his righteousness to our account. He sent the Holy Spirit to do a work inside us. The work of the son happens from the outside in. The work of the spirit happens from the inside out. What part doesn't Jesus cover? (laughs) We must marvel, dear brother and sister, for a moment at the work here of the triune God. This is one God in three persons, and each person plays a particular part, has a particular role in the life of the Christian. And notice, there's no person of the Godhead who is not involved in our lives. There is no person in the Godhead who is distant or far away. This becomes evident as we continue to unpack these verses. And so it begins with a God who sends. And notice here, who does God send? He uses a different, maybe, designation than we're used to. God has sent the Spirit of His Son. Who is that? What is that? Well, Paul used similar language two other times in the Bible. Romans 8, verse 9 says this. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now listen carefully. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. You hear it. The Spirit of Christ. Let's look at one other one. Philippians 1, verse 19. Paul says this, For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. So did you hear that? The Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of Jesus Christ, and now here in Galatians, Paul uses these words, the Spirit of His Son. Paul here is referring to the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. This is not a separate spirit, not a different spirit from the Holy Spirit. It's not as if the Spirit of Christ is different than the Holy Spirit. 
Rather, we can think about it this way. The Holy Spirit was the Spirit who rested on Jesus and who led Jesus Christ. In fact, listen to these verses. From Isaiah 11, verse 2. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Who is this? This one who is coming. This branch. This righteous branch. The Messiah. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. That's the, that's the prediction. That's the prophecy. There's going to come a one, and you're going to know him as the Messiah. How? The Spirit of the Lord's going to be on him. And that's exactly what happens, isn't it? Matthew 3, 16 And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And then a few verses later, Matthew 4, 1, then Jesus was led, how? By the Spirit, into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So the Spirit of his Son Because he is the spirit-anointed Messiah. And so here, God is sending the spirit of his son, the same spirit that rested on his son, that same spirit that led his son, the same spirit that Christ knew, that Paul designates the spirit of Christ. Where does God send his spirit? Into our hearts. Where does God send his spirit? Where does God send the spirit of his son? Into our hearts. I would dare say that that thought does not terrify you enough this morning. What do you know about your heart? What do I know about my heart? My heart is full of sin. My heart is desperately sick. I can't even understand my own heart, yet that's where God sends his spirit, his Holy Spirit, into my deplorable heart, yes. And what happens when God sends his spirit into my heart? What happens when God sends his spirit into the very essence of my personhood? It's there that change happens. It's there that renewal happens. It's there that regeneration happens. It's there when God sends his spirit into my heart, my heart does not, cannot stay the same. And he does this He sends the Spirit into our hearts so that we are directed to the Son, so that we have the same desires, the same mission as the Son to obey and live in relationship with the Father. And it's very important that the Holy Spirit is sent into our hearts because this is exactly what God has promised would happen in the New Covenant. Listen to Ezekiel 36, verses 26 through 27. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey all my rules. That is a miraculous event. When God sends his spirit 
into our hearts, when God gives us a new heart, when God removes our heart of stone. We need this to happen because all true change, all lasting change happens in the heart. If any change is going to happen in your life, it must start in the heart. And it's going to be a work of God changing you. We can't break our own hearts. We can't remove our hearts of stone. We can't revive our dead and lifeless hearts. Only God can do that. Do not be deceived, dear brother and sister, into thinking that true life-giving and life-lasting change can happen any other way than by the work of the Spirit. And it's the Spirit, the Spirit of the living God who is dwelling in you. Is that something that you treasure? You see that as a gift that God has given you. That, that is why we can be called the very temple of God because we have the very presence of God residing in our hearts. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 5, verses 3 through 5. He says this, not only, that we not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that our suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and, ho and hope does not put us to shame. Why? Because God's love has been poured into our hearts. How? Through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. The Holy Spirit is, in fact, how God pours His love into our hearts. He has sent His Spirit to dwell in us. And what vivid imagery this is. God's love poured into our hearts. Our heart is this empty vessel. And we want our love cup filled up, don't we? And how many of us try to fill up our love cup with all of the wrong kinds of love? All of the wrong kinds of things. What happens? What happens when you focus on all of your needs and all of your wants and striving on your own to fill up your own love cup? You end up fearing people and using people to your own selfish ends. Yet isn't that our world? Isn't that our world? Trying to fill up their own love cups with all of the wrong kind of love. As one author puts it, that love tank will always leak. But what happens? What happens when God's love is poured into you through the Holy Spirit? It's only then that you rightly respond to the great love that he has given you, and it's only then that you are able to truly love those whom God has called you to love. That is loving your neighbor and loving your enemies. I love even the imagery here that comes from the King James Version. 
It says that God's love has been shed abroad in our hearts. It's as if God's love has found every nook and cranny of our hearts and there's no place where his love does not penetrate, no place that his love won't fill you and satisfy you. And how does that all happen? Through the work of the Spirit. That's the only way that we know God's love. And what happens now? What happens when God sends the Spirit of His Son into our hearts? There is a response. There is something that comes out. Paul says this is a crying out that happens. Now, we might be tempted to think first and primarily that this is us crying out. We do cry out, but the way Paul says it here makes it clear that primarily and first, it's the Spirit crying out. So before we jump and say this is me crying out, don't worry, we, we'll get there. But it, first and foremost is the Spirit crying out through us, through you. Notice this is a loud crying out. This is something that is heard. It's a crying out that begins through the Spirit. And where does that crying out begin? It begins where He dwells in our hearts. This is our heart's cry as Christians. And it's a crying that can't happen apart from the Spirit. And what is it that comes out? What do we say through the Spirit? I love how this is expressed here. This loud crying out. We say, Abba, Father. How many people today are crying out? Their hearts are crying out because they feel pain. Their hearts are crying out because they are empty. Their hearts are crying out because they are in trouble. They are crying out and their crying out is deafening because they are hurting, they are tired, they are lost, they are in need and they cry out to all of the wrong things to help them. But for the Christian, the Spirit so turns our hearts that there is only one to whom we can call out to. And there is only one who will hear our cry. And it is this, Abba, Father, He will hear our cry. And here is a cry out to our Father because He is close. He is intimate. We have a relationship with Him. We have fellowship with Him. So close that we know Him with this familial term, Father. And look at the words. Look at how these words are doubled. So it says, Abba, Father. Those are really the same words. Very close in meaning. There's a reason why you double a word. It expresses urgency. It expresses fervency. It expresses earnestness. It expresses expectancy. And Paul is saying that this is the way that we as Christians should pray isn't that what's happening when we cry out we're praying to our abba father this is spirit prompted prayer here is what it is to pray in the spirit of god is this how you pray is this what you cry out when you get on your knees do you pray fervently urgently earnestly longingly praying because you need help from your heavenly father it reminds me of my child who comes to me and says this, Dad, Dad, 
Dad, dad, dad, dad, dad, dad, dad, dad, dad, until I finally cry out with great annoyance and exasperation and frustration, yes, what is it that you want? Yet our Heavenly Father never responds that way. He listens. He hears. And he says that that repetition, Dad, is exactly what you should be saying. That is the spirit of proper prayer when you are praying in the Spirit. Is this kind of prayer lacking in your life? Is your prayer life suffocating? Is it dry? Is it lifeless? Is it difficult? Why? Why is it so? Why is it that so many Christians would struggle to pray? I think it's for this reason. We're not in need enough. because you aren't helpless enough. It's your pride that's gotten in your way. It's your arrogance that kills prayer because such arrogance and pride believes that we don't need God. But this is why we pray in the Spirit because it's the Spirit who helps us in our weakness. It's the Spirit who intercedes for us so that we are even able to pray. Romans 8.26, likewise the Spirit helps us in our weakness for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but what? The Spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Dear Christian, do you feel the need to cry out because you are pressed in from every side? Do you feel the need to cry out because you seem to be forsaken? Do you feel the need to cry out because you seem utterly cast away from his presence? How often are you doubting if God will ever even hear you at all? Stop relying on your feeling and rely instead on the very promise of God. Rely on the spirit whom God has put in your heart so that you can cry out to your heavenly father, Abba, Father. And it's this prayer that's so crucial, so important that we see these terms, Abba, Father, only used three times in the New Testament. So one time here in Galatians, one time in the book of Romans 8.15, says this, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Do you know the other place that we find these words? The third place. We find it again on the lips of Jesus. Mark chapter 14, verses 35 through 36. Says this, and going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will but what you will. 
This is how we know that the spirit of God's son is dwelling in us because we pray the same prayer as Jesus. We have the same prayer on our lips as Jesus. And it's right here that the Holy Spirit comes and testifies to our hearts that we are in fact children of God. It's the assurance and confirmation of the Holy Spirit that God has adopted us, that we are his sons, that we have such familiarity with him, coupled with a sense of reverence for him, that we approach the eternal throne of God with confidence and boldness, complete security, knowing that we are addressing the one God and Father who is over all and through all and in all. How did the Galatians know that they were true believers, true sons of God? The Spirit confirmed it in their hearts, and is that the confirmation that you know? It is the confirmation that you need, the Holy Spirit who tenderly communicates to our spirit that we are children of God, eternal heirs uh, heirs of eternal glory in heaven. It's the Spirit testifying that you are no longer a slave, but a son. There may be some who find this concept difficult to grasp for them because those words, Abba, Father, are not words of comfort and assurance, particularly when they think of their own father. A father who wasn't there. A father who caused destruction and terror with his words. A father who instead of filling the hole in your heart has left a bleeding, hemorrhaging hole in you. There is good news for you today. There's a heavenly father that you can trust. He is the father who is always there. He is the father who can care for you perfectly with the love of the father that you need. Let me say something to the men of the church for a moment. There are people who need fathers. They need spiritual fathers of the faith. Spiritual fathers who will show them and model for them the love of the heavenly father. Men who will talk about Jesus. Men who will talk about faith. Men who will show them what it's like to follow Jesus. Whose spiritual father are you? Who have you poured your life into? Not just your own kids, but who else in the church? Who else in this family? What does your ministry in the church say about the heavenly father? Does it tell the truth? Is it an accurate representation of him? One more thing, as we, squeeze, as we squeeze these words, Abba, Father, a little bit more, we find comes out. Why these two words? Why does Paul use these two words? Two words that are so very close, if not identical in meaning. What's the difference? Well, we might say it's very obvious. Just look at those words there again for a moment. One is written in Aramaic, Abba. The language used by the Jews in those days. And one is written in Greek. Why does Paul use these two words? 
And I think this interpretation is important. This interpretation goes all the way back to Augustine, goes all the way back to Calvin, and I find it convincing because I think, I believe, that this interpretation falls into the stream of what Paul has been saying in the book of Galatians. These are the words that we cry out because we, in crying out these words, show the whole unity of the people of God. What do we cry out as God's people? Whether you are Jew or Gentile, we cry out the same thing. Paul has been saying this, if you are sons of Abraham and you are, if you are Abraham's offspring and you are, if there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, but we are all one in Christ Jesus, what would you expect us to do? We would cry out. We as one people of God should be crying out the very same thing. Abba, Father, this is the gospel that God can be called upon in a loud voice by all. For his adopting grace has been known and made known among the nations. How does this apply to us? Or so what? It tells us that when we call out Abba Father, we are not calling out alone. We are not calling out solo. We are crying out in the midst of the community that is the church. God has sent his spirit, the spirit of his son, into who? Our hearts. We are all saying, we are all praying the same thing, and we're all praying to the same Father. This is not a merely individual crying out. It's not a lone voice. It's not singular. It's y'all. It's us. It's we crying out as the whole church. And as we cry out with one voice, we're all praying the prayer of Jesus together, Abba, Father. Finally, quickly, verse the fourth point. God made you his heir. God made you his heir. Is this the reality that you live in? Are you a slave or are you a son? And Paul reminds us, you are no longer a slave. Paul is encouraging the freedom of the believer If you're a slave, then what? Don't live like a slave. Remember that state of misery. Remember that state of degradation. Remember that place of despair. That is no longer you, for you are a believer in Jesus Christ because you are now a son of God, have been elevated to a place of dignity, elevated to a place of joy, elevated to a place where you are now called an heir of God. Paul says, God has made you his heir. This is the economy of God in the Christian life. All things are of God. Do you see and understand how we have got to this place of being an heir? Got to this place of privilege. It was the Son of God who took on flesh and dwelt among us. The Son of God who became human so that human beings could become sons of God and so heirs of God. And all of this was by God's great and magnificent design and action to bring you to Himself through Christ so that we can say, 
And we can know God as our Abba Father. And knowing Him as our Abba Father, we say, that's enough. Let's pray. Father, let our prayers not quickly rush first through those first words. You are our heavenly Father. A good Father. Gracious Father. And I pray if there is someone here today who does not know you as their Father, that they would come to know you as their Father through Jesus Christ. He is the only way. But He is the good way, the right way, the true way. That You would show them their sin today. Show them their need for a Savior. Show them their need to be redeemed. And show them that such a payment was made for them on the cross of Jesus Christ. I pray that our hearts would be drawn to you, Father. That our hearts would cry out with one voice to you, knowing that you are always there and you will always hear and you will always help. You've given us what we need to help us to pray, so we trust that you will give us what we need in this life to live it for you and for your glory. May we be encouraged to know that you are our Father and that being our Father, you will never leave, you will never forsake, you will never let us stray. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.